Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and enabling biotechs to build on-demand teams. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm very excited to finally have Twen Ong, CEO at Ring Therapeutics and CEO partner at Flagship Pioneering here with us. Pleasure to have you on today, Twen. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Ro. Pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. Great. So Twen, to kick us off, would love if you could walk us through how you initially got interested in biotech, the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. That's a great question. I've been listening a lot to the podcast. The common thread amongst a lot of your guests, it really is the passion for science. So I similarly had a passion very young in science, developed that into a career as a physician, ultimately training as an ophthalmologist. And a while back, I think really had a yearning to satisfy an entrepreneurial itch that I had. And so joined Pfizer, initially starting in the UK, ultimately relocating to La Jolla. And really that's where I cut my teeth as the drug developer, continued to build with responsibilities ultimately moving to Baal where I had the opportunity to manage development across three business units, both pharmaceuticals, devices, and contact lenses on a global sort of scale. So that really taught me a lot about drug development at a large scale. I wanted to continue really building off that knowledge, pursuing an MBA at NYU Stern. And then following that, wanted to see where the industry was going. And for me, it was really around genetic medicine, so became chief medical officer at a company called BTC Therapeutics, working on a number of rare genetic diseases. This led me ultimately back in terms of a chief development officer position at Nightstar Therapeutics, looking at gene therapies for inherited retinal disease. And then we ultimately were acquired by Biogen. And so I led the ophthalmology franchise briefly before joining Ring Therapeutics. And given that what we were just talking about in terms of some of our shared ophthalmology background, I'm curious what initially got you interested in pursuing ophthalmology? For me, I guess as you pursue a career in medicine, so you start with your preclinical studies and then you wear your short white coat in the UK, and you're really looking for inspiration. You know, how can you make a difference? What's going to satisfy your own curiosities from a specialty standpoint? And for me, I think ophthalmology was the one I remember actually just scrubbing up in the operating theater very early on within that sort of internship. And I had the privilege of working with the ophthalmologist that actually was in, ended up being the, the Queen's Oculus, someone called Jonathan Jagger, so an inspirational surgeon. And then when you really look at ophthalmology as a profession, not only is it admirable in regards to being able to solve patients of disease and to be able to improve patient vision, for me, ophthalmology was really an opportunity to make that difference through surgery, being able to correct patient's vision being able to actually see patient pathology right before your eyes, literally through the patient's eyes. And then really, I think, ability to make an impact, but really be able to study the disease, be able to continue researching in the field led me to pursue a career in ophthalmology. And you talked about going to business school when you were in industry. Talk to us about that decision and what you felt was missing in your background that made you decide to go pursue B-School. That's a great question. I think it was really a matter of finding the right time when you're pursuing a busy career with a family life of when to try and fit that in. I think really day-to-day work, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people in management pick up the skills of an MBA. But for me, it was really to try and formalize that. And so I led the decision to do a two-year course at NYU. 
which ultimately I think has been great for me to really fundamentally understand the concepts, the business that continue driving that in a deeper way. And for me right now as a CEO, it's something that I think reflects very well in terms of the experiences I've gained from that formal education. And now talk a little bit about the second title in your introduction, which is CEO partner at Flagship Pioneering. So for those that aren't familiar with that title or the flagship ecosystem, just talk to us about what that role entails for you. Yeah, that's a great question. At Flagship, the second world of Flagship is pioneering. We're a company where we like to think of things in leaps and bounds. And so really ask the what if question. And we looked at Ring Therapeutics, for example, we asked the question of what if the ideal viral vector is inside of us already. And as CEO partner, that allows us to continue thinking about these broad leaps and bound concepts. But yet as a CEO of Ring Therapeutics, from an operational standpoint, be able to focus on the day-to-day. So really continue being connected to the ecosystem at flagship and leveraging that support network that we have and being able to maximize value for shareholders. Again, having that dual role is critical for the success of Ring Therapeutics. And we were talking a bit about how this is your first time being a CEO and you've had lots of varied experience across pharma, big biotech, and so on. I'm curious if you could reflect What's something that you didn't have as strong an appreciation for being in the CEO seat when you first walked into the role versus now, a couple of years later? It's a great question. There's probably a lot of things I think I have a better appreciation for. I think you tend to be much more, or you should be much more reflective as a CEO. I often use the phrase, ironically, that we need to zoom out while we're in meetings, for example. It's very common to be in the moment of a discussion, but sometimes it's actually be helpful just to sort of zoom out in some ways to have this out-of-body experience and actually see yourself, the questions you're asking, how you're influencing the team and where ultimately these conversations are going. And so I think that's one thing that I've learned to do a lot more being a CEO versus some of my other sort of roles in the past. I think the other sort of aspect is really constantly evolving, both in terms of your own leadership skills, your style, I often say that at Ring Therapeutics, we reinvent the company probably every six months, every year, both in terms of the stage we're at, the science that we're progressing, the talent and people that we have that help us along this journey, and then trying to think ahead of what we need as well. So I think it's a constant evolution from both myself and from Ring, and then really being able to zoom out and be able to assess that evolution and trying to be a step ahead and trying to figure out what do we need. That's a great point. Asking you to reflect for one more question, which is you've sat on boards prior to being CEO at Ring. I'm curious what you've observed in terms of your participation as a board member when you hadn't been in the CEO seat to now being in the CEO seat. And if you've noticed just any differences in terms of just your own approach to being a board member. To me, it's almost absolutely vital that any CEO should be a board member of other boards. For me, when you look back, and I'll just maybe take a slight sort of tangent. As a CEO, when you're looking forward, a lot of your decisions sort of making processes, your experiences are guided by your past. And I think this is where being a board member prior to being a CEO was highly beneficial for me. Just figuring out the dynamics, understanding the strategic sort of implications of different companies, the investors of you around value kind of creation. And even some of the mechanics around, I was a chair of the comp committee as well, and just how that is framed to one, obviously, incentivize CEO, the management, really trying to make sure that we're sort of executing to plan. 
I think all of those things gave me a better appreciation of how to work with my board member colleagues. I think it also gives me somewhat of a benefit in really understanding how to work with the board as well as our management team and how do we engage one another and really get the best out of each other. So that's been really important to me. And I really would highly recommend for other CEOs if they're not already on boards and to participate on other boards. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it's a way to obviously improve pattern recognition by exposing yourself to other companies and other leaders and how they've approached similar scenarios. And just learning from other board members, I've had the privilege and benefit of being able to learn from some great board members from other VCs. I think that's something that we do as executives, right? Pattern recognition, but really in some ways just observing and really learning from others. And that network is fundamentally really strong and important as well. That's a great point. If you're an HR or hiring manager in biotech, you know all too well that the pool of experts seeking full-time employment is shrinking. Filling key full-time positions can be a long, drawn-out ordeal that can slow the pace of execution and growth. Throw away the old hiring playbook. Now you can build a biotech dream team in a fraction of that time. Find out how. Visit Clora.com. Clora. Talent optimized. Okay, now switching gears, since I've bugged you enough about your background and your approach to various things, I'd love to talk about now the gene therapy landscape as you see it and what interested you in Ring originally and struck that entrepreneurial nerve with you based on what you were seeing in the gene therapy landscape. As I mentioned, for me, I think I quickly realized that the future of medicine really lies around precision medicine and genetic medicines, really because of its huge potential. I soon started working on gene therapy and in capsid terms sort of AV2 for inherited renal diseases. And during that process, realized that there must be a better solution. I think as we're thinking about both gene therapy and now mRNA, which has come to the front from sort of COVID vaccination, but also gene editing, the real bottleneck here is delivery. We fundamentally have challenges with having viral vectors or capsids that are tropic can deliver their payload safely and do it in a sort of repeatable sort of fashion as well. And that's where the aha moment came of flagship pioneering three years ago when I joined. We looked to see whether the ideal viral vector already existed inside of us. And can we build a platform out of this so that we could make a vector that is modular, that allows us to package different genetic medicines, do it in a way where it's tropic with tissues of interest, and really be able to be redosed as well. And what were some of the constraints that you've been observing over the last, let's say, five to 10 years that are still there today as it relates to developing new therapeutics, leveraging gene therapy? I think that the main constraints is around tropism where that's improving. I think there's a lot of captain engineering that really addresses some of the lack of tropism. I think the issue is that we've had to increase sort of doses and titers of some of the systemic drugs where we may not have either the potency or tropism that's needed. That obviously led to some side effects and systemic sort of toxicity sort of issues. That ultimately, I think, is going to be addressed. The issue that we still have around a lot of the AAV-based vector systems, really immunogenicity, a big part of what we had saw was immunogenicity or pre-existing neutralizing antibodies. 40 to 60% of our patients in our clinical trials were not able to even receive gene therapies as a result of that. I think that's something that is a little bit more challenging to iron out. There are a number of innovative approaches around that. 
But that's where I think where another viruses and another vectors potentially, given the fact that they're commensal, given the fact they're stealthy, could offer a benefit here as we address this problem. And now with that background, talk to us about where you are in terms of developing and scaling the technology at Ring, how large the team is, and what folks can look forward to over the next year. This has been an exciting year for us. We're at about 100 people at Ring Therapeutics. What we've been doing over the last few years is really building out our platform. So our platform allows us to genetically sequence um, different viruses from different tissues of our body. We can do that in a exquisite way down to the cellular level now using RNA-seq. And from that, we've generated a catalog of over 5,000 different sequences that we can vectorize. Within that catalog, we can interrogate using machine learning. So we'll be able to predict one where certain viruses kind of come from within our bodies. And does that triptropism, does that sort of have a, a predictor of sort of immunogenicity and so on as well down the line? Another really cool part of our platform is what we were trying to solve for is, okay, beyond tropism, beyond redosability, there are still challenges innately with the manufacture of AAV gene therapy. And is there a, a mousetrap, as it were, of being able to do this? So we came up with something called another BRICS. It's an in vitro manufacture of captive protein. We take that genomic sequence where we have intellectual property and generate captive protein in a way that actually forms the shell of the vector. Within that, we're able to package both DNA and RNA payloads. And so making that very modular in a way that allows us to address different diseases using different sort of modalities and still be able to leverage the tropism and the immune cell properties of the virus itself. And given the inherent risk in everything that's involved in terms of drug development, and you talked about some of the constraints as it relates to gene therapy, I'd love if you could talk to us about the culture at Ring and how you balance that risk with being fearless as you approach getting into the clinic in the next couple of years. I mean, this is as fundamentally important, right? In addition to the science, is really the people. It sounds like a cliche, but when I joined three years ago, this was one of my priorities to build the culture and build that foundation early on. So our cultural values are audacity, daring to dream and dream big, inclusion, which I think encompasses diversity and teamwork, uh, ultimately resilience. And for short, we call it air. And we reinforce that message at every opportunity. It's reinforcing it at town halls. We have what's called an inner circle that we meet every month to provide sort of updates. We connect that with rewards and recognition in terms of just how have you employed those cultural values to achieve our goals. And then we have playful ways of expressing that as well. Some of you may be familiar with our sort of converse hair sneakers. I'm wearing my ring hair t-shirt. And so the design at the back of this shows Bruce Lee with his famous slogan saying, be water, my friend. And that be water, my friend is philosophically about being very adaptable. Bruce Lee talks about when you pour water into a cup or a teapot, it forms the shape of that. It has the explosive tendency of being able to unleash that power very quickly when you need it to as well. And so as an ode to my hero, Bruce Lee, we've changed the water to air and we've said, be air, my friend. And I think it's just a reminder as we wear our t-shirts proudly around ring, just reminding us, okay, this is the culture. This is the philosophy that we have within us because what we're doing is challenging. I think we're looking to transform and disrupt humanity in a really positive way, but it's just, again, a day-to-day -day reminder of what we're trying to do. 
And given that Bruce Lee was a hero of mine also, it's one of the better biotech shirts that I have ever seen. It's funny you said that. I think when we released this a few weeks ago, I caught one of our employees saying, this is one of the few work t-shirts I would wear outside of work. I think we were proud about that. Yeah, that's great. So Twen, you know, you touched on precision medicine. Talk to us about how you think about that space over the next two to three decades and what some of your hopes and aspirations are in terms of developments in precision medicine during that time. Yeah, that's a great question. I think we're all trying to read the, the tea leaves and the crystal ball of where the field is going. I think for me, as I mentioned before, genetic medicine is the future we're heading towards. Obviously, that's overlaid now with the power of artificial intelligence or machine learning. And I think we're somewhat transacting both at being therapeutics. We're taking something that Mother Nature has gifted us, these commensal viruses that have evolved over millennia and evolved unique traits. So we've built a platform to be able to harness those properties and to do it in a way that it takes biology, i.e. the virology of the virus, and be able to engineer that in a way that allows us to make these viral particles with their payloads. So taking a biological solution to an engineering sort of solution and being able to scale that up. I think that's our effort of being able to address some of the challenges right now that we have, for example, within delivery. How do you do that in a scalable way? How do you do it in a cost-effective manner as well? I think the challenge we often see here is that with precision medicine, with gene therapies, these are expensive therapies for obvious reasons. And there's also a debate about who gets access to these therapies, both not only in terms of first world versus developing kind of countries, but even when we look at diseases, because of the cost of goods, because of the number of patients, at what point does it become cost-effective or not cost-effective or commercially viable for products? And so I think when you look at potentially taking a highly innovative medicine, such as a viral vector delivery system, and you can lower that down in terms of a recombinant sort of protein type of level of cost of goods, it allows you now to access so many different sort of patients with different sort of diseases, different kind of countries, so I think that's a big benefit, and I think that's something that's how we're looking to solve for that using another Brickstar engineering sort of solution. And then ultimately, I think as we become even more precise in regards to both payload vector design, vector engineering, as we've seen as call on fire in terms of the imagination, both within tech and biotech sort of world, we've implemented machine learning to further understand the genetic sequence around Anello viruses. How do we deploy that in a way that allows us to build our understanding around tropism, the immune sort of profile. But I think from a next version or next generation of that, we could see a possibility where we're literally typing into chat GPT, I need a viral vector that will include this payload, will target this tissue, has this sort of immune profile, can be sort of redosed, and we'll generate that sort of sequence from that. So that's obviously distant future, but something that I think we're trying to enable as well. On that point of cost effectiveness, we're recording this in Q4 of 2023, and it's certainly been a challenging year in our sector from a capital constraints perspective within biotech. I'm curious if, you know, given the current environment, how have you changed your thinking in terms of how you build and scale Ring, if at all? It's a great question. I think when you look back over the last three years, there's been a lot of change. I joined at the height of COVID. And if we could all somewhat take a moment to reflect back on that, the markets were up. There was a lot of liquidity in the system. 
hiring employees, I always joked, was like nuclear proliferation. Everybody had 50 offers. They had everybody had significant kind of titles. And it was a tough market. I think we were all of the wisdom of the management, the board. We kind of really took an approach where let's hire as needed. Let's grow as needed. Let's not necessarily get distracted by the noise of trying to scale up rapidly. So we've really focused our efforts on the discovery aspect of building out our science, making sure that the platform is enabled. We'll be presenting at ESGTC, showing transduction in mice. And as well as recently, we've not published, but was highlighted transduction in NHP as well. So we've really demonstrated the platform and now really starting to focus on DC and IND. So that's really where I think our kind of evolution will move next. We've made some essential highs within the executive leadership team to focus more on, again, the translational as well as the IND sort of focusing aspect. And then I think I suspect our scale up would be, again, focused on IND enabling studies to get into the clinic with our um, team. Thanks for sharing that perspective, given where we are. Before, it's when we wrap up, I'd love if I could ask you to reflect for one last time. And given all that you've seen across your career and experience across your career, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? That's a great question. I think for me, it's really more life is going to work out. I think it's always hard when your younger self is just trying to figure out their path. Enjoy the ride. Be a constant learner and be as rounded as possible. You never know the experience that you encounter will ultimately allow you to connect the dots forward. I think many of us are type A personalities. I think we're very hyper-focused upon achieving our goals, both from a career and personal standpoint. And then I, I think we forget that sometimes when you look in the review mirror, those adjacencies and those things that we do that make us who we are innately allow us to achieve the things we've achieved. And so I've had an incredible life. I sometimes joke that I, I don't know what I've done to deserve this, but looking back, I would probably take a little bit more of a relaxed approach. Question is, if I took the relaxed approach, would I end up with where I am now? That's always the debate. But I think that's always advice you offer to your younger self. On the heels of that salient advice, Twin, it was great to have you on. Pleasure chatting. And thank you for sharing both personal and professional aspects of, of your career and who you are. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Raul. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.